That was beautiful. Well, this morning we are returning to our study of the book of Nehemiah, and I know most of you are exceptionally excited to be back in this Old Testament book. We spent a lot of time in Nehemiah almost a whole year ago. Actually, I think it was more than a whole year ago. It was about this time last year that we began in Nehemiah chapter 1. And I know that everyone in our congregation spends a lot of time uh, remembering every sermon that I have ever preached. And so you are all familiar with what happens in Nehemiah chapter 1 all the way through Nehemiah chapter 7. And actually, it's okay if you don't. I'm going to remind you this morning. Nehemiah chapter 1 through Nehemiah chapter 7 tells the story of God's prophet, uh, not prophet, but God's chosen man to return to the area of Jerusalem to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, namely the walls around the city. Before we get there, Nehemiah finds its place in the biblical history in I think one of the most incredible places of all time. We have to go all the way back to Genesis to see just how remarkable this is. You see, the Bible does not tell a discombobulated... By the way, one of my preacher friends listened to our sermon and texted me, how do you spell discombobulated? And I said, well, Siri knows. So the Bible doesn't tell a discombobulated story. Between the 66 books of canon, there's one story being told all along. We will read in the Bible of God creating. He creates a good creation. He creates humanity in perfect goodness. And then we soon after see sin enter into the world. The consequences of sin have bearing not only on all of humanity and all of creation as it impacts the world around them. Man is subjugated to working the field, no longer just enjoying the fruit and the perfect goodness that God had created. But man is actually separated from God. In Genesis chapter 12, the Bible becomes laser focused on one particular family, Abraham. And it tells the story of God making a provisional decision to choose Abraham and his descendants so that they would be a blessing to the entire world. As we move on, we see this blessing continue through the life of Joseph in the exile of Egypt. And then in Exodus, we read about the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt because they were growing in so much number and so much blessing that God had given them that Pharaoh was actually afraid that they would overcome the Egyptians. And God delivers them out of Exodus and in or through the Exodus into the wilderness where they stay in 40 years because they weren't able to be delivered directly into the promised land because of their disobedience. And in those 40 years, do you think the nation of Israel learned their lesson that obedience to God was their calling in life? No. Being led through Joshua, they enter the promised land. They build the great city of Jerusalem and they see the great king that they are supposed to worship. They're given judges that are supposed to rule over them and that's the whole chapter of or whole book of Judges. And then we look that the people of Israel said, give us a king. We want to be like everyone else around us. I want to look like all the other nations, the great nations that are beside us. Let me look like them. Give us a king. 
They missed the fact that God was their king, and he was their sole king, and he was supposed to be their only king. He was supposed to be their only sustenance and provider, and they missed that fact. But they got a king. First Saul, who feared the people more than he feared God. Then David, who feared God more than he feared the people. And then Solomon. What happened after Solomon? The nation of Israel was divided. We read in the Chronicles and in 1 Kings of the story of the northern ten tribes of Israel who would become called Israel, living for generation after generation after king after king, of king who is disobedient to God. Not one of them glorifies God. And even in the southern tribes, between the remaining two tribes, that would be called Judah. They had some kings that glorified God, but by and large, they were nothing different than the nation of Israel north to them. God sent his judgment against the northern tribes of Israel through the conquest of the Assyrians. And a few years later, he would send judgment against the north, southern tribes as well through the conquest of Babylon. For years, the nation of Israel would live in exile similar to that which they had been delivered from in the Babylonian captivity. But as the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians, the Persians became a bit more amicable towards the Israelites. We read of the first attempt to come back to Jerusalem. And remember, there's different waves of exile that are taking place during this time. And the, the first waves of returning through the Persian Empire um, are led with the purpose of rebuilding the temple, God's temple. Of course, the temple would never be returned to its glory that it saw during the days of Solomon when it was filled with gold and it was beautiful and it was a place of worship, but they did their best. Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 1, receives word of, from a fellow named Hanani that Jerusalem, after all of this time, still lies in ruin. And what we looked at in the first several chapters of Nehemiah is this story of God calling somebody. How does this actually take place? God placed a burden on Nehemiah's heart with the news of the Jerusalem being laid in ruin, that it, it broke his heart. And I imagine Nehemiah never spent any time in Jerusalem, but he knew that by heritage he was an Israelite, but he had already achieved a place of, really a place of prominence in the Persian Empire. He was the cupbearer to the king. And he hears this news and he's given the ability God provides for him, not only the burden, but the provision. The door opens for him. And he goes to the king and he says, I want to return to rebuild the wall if you will give me leave. Not only does the king give it to him, but the king gives him even more than he asked for, providing for him the lumber that it would require, the military support that it would take to travel that far, to go back and to rebuild the wall. And when Nehemiah got there, it was smooth sailing. It didn't take any work at all to rebuild the wall. It just happened. Oh, that's not the case. 
He got there and the first thing that he did is he let out in quiet, in secret, and he measured the work that needed to be done. For those leaders in the congregation, think about the way that you lead others. You cannot lead someone where you've never gone. He measured the work, he planned the work, and he came back and he cast the vision. But when he cast the vision, he did not say it with some empty authority. And he didn't say, God told me that we're here to rebuild this wall. No, because by that time, he had a wealth of time spent in prayer, probably close to six months spent in prayer before he even approached the king when this burden was placed on his heart. And he had the time going out into the darkness to measure the wall of Jerusalem to find out what the work would be needed. So when he cast his vision before the people, he said, God has been with us this whole time. Do you not realize that we are a people that have been called by God? Do you not realize that This burden has been placed on my heart and that God has now led me here that I could measure this wall. That he's provided for us all of the equipment and all of the supplies that we will need to fulfill this work. Let's build. He united a people that were distraught and depressed and so depressed. I think the picture that we should have in our minds, they didn't even realize they were depressed. They had been depressed so long, this was just their new normal. He invigorated them by making them see the ruin that was around them. They had become calloused to empty practices of worship. They had become calloused to this point in history. We would understand that the walls that had crumbled around them had grass growing up through the stones. This wasn't recent history. It was just commonplace fact, and and we had become completely used to it. Nehemiah leads the people to rebuild the wall despite opposition that came from outside. People telling him and even making false accusations against him. People coming to him with the purpose of saying, I heard that you're rebuilding this wall so that you could rebel against the people who have come to to rule over us. And I'm going to tell the king of Persia that that's exactly what you're doing. I love Nehemiah's response. The things that you have said, you have pulled out of thin air. He leads the people. They rebuild the wall in 52 days. In 52 days, they do a work that had laid in ruins for nearly 100 years. Because God placed a burden inside of somebody's heart. What do you think that burden was for Nehemiah? Was it simply that he wanted to achieve something, that he wanted to build something, that he wanted to accomplish something? Do you think his burden was simply that he wanted Jerusalem to look cool? What brought him to a place of weeping? What revelation made him realize what the people of Israel needed? It was in recognizing that they did not care. The second half of the book of Nehemiah that we find ourselves in this morning does not tell the work of rebuilding the wall, but it tells the work of rebuilding a spiritual life inside of God's chosen people. We're not here to reconstruct buildings and empires. We're here to build the church, which is the people. This is where we will pick up our study this morning.
In fact, though, before we read from our text, let me summarize briefly what happens in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 12. After the wall has been repilt, the people of Israel gather together, and Ezra the scribe stands in the middle on a wooden platform similar to this. with the Levites on either side of him, with the other men of God standing behind him in support, and he opens up the book of the law. What were they reading? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, or the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Bible. They read it from daybreak until noon. from the moment the sun came up until they were about to faint. The people's reaction to the reading of the law. Now, this wasn't anything fancy. We read in the passages that Ezra read the law and that the priest ministered to the people, explaining to them its application in small groups. This is almost a master-teacher picture. And the people's response to this was to weep. The story that I've just told, the the story of creation, the choosing of Abraham, the deliverance of Joseph, the tribes of Israel, the deliverance of Exodus, their time in the wilderness, the second giving of the law. They heard this and they wept. And the priest said to the people, do not weep for today is holy. Today is the day of the Lord. Rejoice for the strength of the Lord is our joy. Our response to worship. What should it look like? How how is it supposed, what is our response supposed to be? Right now we find, I ask, is it prescriptive? Meaning, is this something that we are commanded to do? Are we supposed to respond with weeping or respond with joy through the exhortation of the priest? Or is this simply descriptive? And regardless, what we find is that a genuine response to God's worship is this, that our hearts are changed. Let's read what happens next. But before we do that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, grant us this morning understanding of your word and understanding of how to apply it to our lives. Lord, I thank you for the people that are here this morning, and I pray for those who are not able to be with us. God, I know that so many are out sick and so many are going through major life changes. And God, I just pray for those who are caring for them. God, I pray for this church as we minister to them that you give us wisdom to know how to care for those that we love. And I praise you, Lord, for giving us the blessing of being able to care for so many people. God, as we turn to your word this morning, I pray that you would lift up our hearts, both in understanding of what you have to say and also in the application as we look to what you have to say. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen. Our text this morning comes from Nehemiah chapter 8. I'll read from verse 13 to verse 18. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priest and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. 
Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the houses of God and in the square at the water gate and at the square at the gate of Ephraim. All and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the day of the people of Israel, the, to that day, people, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. God's word demands a response. The people of Israel first wept when they heard God's law read and the consecration that takes place after the wall had been rebuilt. The Levites encouraged the people, though, that to weep was not the end of the story. And, and this is, I think, something important for us to grab hold of as we consider what the gospel's actually telling us. I told you that the Bible has one story moving from beginning to end, and I stopped here at the rebuilding of the wall. This is a crucial moment in history where not only would the nation that God had chose be established, but that their worship would be established. As we progress through the Bible, the story goes on and the gospel tells us that the purpose of this chosen people was not to be just a blessing to Israel, but to be a blessing to every generation, every nation around them. And this is the promise that we take hold of today as we see the fulfillment of that promise in Christ. God came so that this covenant established with Israel would not just exist in His chosen people, but that it would be shared in the covenant of grace brought by the cross. What's so precious and special about this covenant is what we find is as we look through history and we look through all of these different points of failure, it's not for us to look back and say, nation of Israel, why couldn't you just pull yourself together? Because the truth is, if we look at the Bible like that, we actually are looking at our own lives the wrong way. It's not about, why can I not pull myself together to glorify God? The right question is, God, how can I rely on you that you can pull me together? Everything that we do, everything that we think must come back to God's work, especially when we speak about it in the Christian sense. There is no Bible study that will make us a more holy people. There is no particular way of living life that glorifies God more than the other, other than one fact. God is the primary purpose behind everything that we do. Not only is He primary purpose, but He's a primary motivation. Now, how distraught would you be if you were the nation of Israel reading only the first five books of the Bible and you don't have this larger, greater story hanging out at the end? You read of the laws and the commandments that God gave us and His deliverance and His love and His might, and you would weep too. In fact, even in our lives, I think we have circumstances today that we can think of that there are times when God has been so provisional, so caring, so blessing, and in our disobedience and our ignorance, maybe we weren't even clear. Maybe we couldn't even see what He was doing. And instead, we neglected it. 
looking back in retrospect, maybe I'm more grown up and I look back and I can see what God was doing in my life and I say, God, thank you for providing for me then. God, thank you for protecting me from myself then. How do we live in the now? How do we live in the present where the rubber meets the road and know that we are seeking God's will for us? The promise of the Levites was a promise that is hinged in the fulfillment of this covenant that he's given them. When the Levites tell the people, go away, eat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's verse 10. This promise is hinged upon the fact that God delights in being able to care for us. The obstacle for caring for us is that you are always in the way. Humanity, mankind, people, the entire anthropos, all of us, We think we're bigger than we are. When we read in the Old Testament, and especially in the narratives, what God is doing through His people, the remarkable fact that we take hold of is, I wasn't ever in control. I never had the wheel. Jesus was always holding the wheel. When we read in Colossians 1 that God upholds the world, He's always been in control. Still, humanity relies on ourselves. The benefit of God's word is that it's humbling and reminding us that there is nothing inside of me outside of God. Not only did he create me, but he sustains me. Every breath that I take is hinged upon God's grace. Do you really understand that? Have you really thought about that? We talk about God's grace from the perspective of an eternity of promises that He has given us. We sing songs of the day that, that we will be reunited in heaven, that we will be given crowns of glory for the things that we have done, and we look forward to the moment that we'll be able to take those crowns off and lay them before the feet of the Lamb. We think about eternity and we find ourselves encouraged Do we think about it in the present? I cannot breathe without God. My diaphragm will not move to make my lungs expand with air without God. I cannot speak without God. I cannot move without God. Oh, for where shall I go outside of your presence, O Lord? People wept, but they were told to delight in the power of God's sustaining love. Our response to worship is not supposed to just be sorrow-drenched. It's supposed to be wrapped up as we recognize how low it is that God comes down to reach us. The purpose of looking at our sin is certainly not to glorify it. 
And it's certainly not to return to it. It's to humble us in seeing God with us there. There is no depth that God has not traversed. There is no height that God has not climbed. In fact, he's at both in the same time. In both at the same time. He cares for his chosen people. In the context of our passage this evening, that would be the nation of Israel. I would note, though, that even now, even in our reading of Nehemiah, during this contextualized time, they had a burden and a purpose to be a blessing to the nations around them. Our purpose today, the people of God's chosen nation, those saved by grace under this covenant of grace, our purpose today is to respond to God's word. And after rejoicing, we begin our text with the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priest and the Levites come together with Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. What should our response be in looking at God's word? You know what my response would be if I was just on my face weeping as I recognized how far I had fallen from God's promises and I was told to take joy and delight? It would be to go back to God's word and find more out about this joy and delight. And this is the response of the fathers. They would come together, not alone, with the Levites and the priests, with people who could help them to understand and who could encourage them. And and remember, the role of the, the priest in the Old Testament is not really to make good points, it's to ask good questions. And so that they could ask good questions and they could ponder what the Bible was saying and they could understand it and they could read it for themselves so that they could study it. Here they come together, demanding a response. Because God's word always demands a response. I don't know if you realize this, but when I have the privilege of preaching on Sunday mornings, my thoughts and opinions do not really matter. What I think, what I want, what I desire does not matter. You know what? The really matters whenever we preach the Word on Sunday morning, it's actually that you leave here with a better understanding of what God's Word actually says. David Guzik writes, If you leave knowing five helpful hints to a better life, but do not have a greater understanding of God's Word, I have failed. If you leave having been amused by humor, entertained by anecdotes, or captivated by stories, but do not have a greater understanding of God's Word, I have failed. If you leave motivated to action or praying a prayer, but it isn't based on a greater understanding of God's Word, I have failed. If you leave admiring me, but do not have a greater understanding of God's Word, then I have failed, and I will be held accountable for my failing. When I pick a text for our study, as I have the privilege to do as your pastor, I I do not know what it is going to teach. Does that amuse you? 95% of the time, I have no idea which direction I'm heading. When I pick a text, I don't know what it's going to teach. Do you know why? 
I don't know what it's going to teach until I have done the work of sitting down and studying it. In a lot of churches today, you will find preachers that preach passages similar, and this is their method. I know what I want to say. I just need to find a text that supports it in the Bible. This is a terrible model for studying the Bible. And you think it's bad whenever I talk about preachers and everyone says, well, it's a good thing I'm not a preacher. I don't have to worry about that. How many people do Bible study like that? I know how I feel. What does the Bible say about love? I know how I feel. What does the Bible say about this? You're not having a conversation with God. You're having a conversation with yourself. You are actually reading into the Bible whatever you want it to say whenever you do not humble yourself before God as a first mark of coming to His Word. The people of Israel wept and they returned to joy. And you know what's so great about that is they come together on the second day when the fathers come with the priests and the Levites and Ezra the scribe to study the words of the law. I am totally worthless. I am sustained completely by God. There's nothing inside of me that could possibly glorify God without Him glorifying Himself in me. And then they turn to the Word. With nothing else to give, with nothing coming into it, can you imagine how open their eyes are to seeing what God has done? And let me explain what's so amazing about this. When we read the Bible and we talk about how God's revealing Himself to us, as He's showing Himself to us, as He's disclosing Himself to us, this is what's truly incredible. Romans chapter 1 gives us the picture that from the beginning of time, everything in creation has been glorifying God. Everything that could be ever known about God has been plainly on display for all of humanity since the beginning of time. From theological terms, why then is it necessary for us to put so much emphasis on studying the Bible? It comes back to sin. Even though creation's a perfect picture of God's glory and majesty and power and morality and His right to judge and everything that He is, my sinfulness will not let me see it for everything that it is. Just think about it. Why is the whole world not saved if they can walk out and see the glory of God declared in the tree? Their vision's marred by sin. Their understanding's marred by sin. But praise God, He doesn't stop at natural revelation, that He gives us special revelation, that we can come to Him and that we can know Him, that He would illuminate the truths that are found in nature as we read about Him in His Word. And we do have a response to this. We we absolutely have a response to this because what do the people of Israel do immediately after studying the Word of God? They found it written that on the seventh month of the year they were supposed to celebrate what was known as the Feast of Booths. They were supposed to go out and they were supposed to build tents for themselves. And they were supposed to live in those tents, not in their home, for a whole week. Some of you know Labor Day. Nobody was here. And you, I assume you were all celebrating the Feast of Booths. What was the deal with that? We'll get to it. The Word of God demands that when we look into it, we respond to what it says and not what we want it to say. 
There's nothing inside of us that can glorify God if it's not for God glorifying himself in us. James, when writing about this principle, writes in James 1, 23 and 24, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Can you imagine looking in a mirror and forgetting what you looked like? Eugene Peterson paraphrases that same verse, I think, better. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you are anything but. Letting the word go in one ear and out the other, act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act like those who glance, those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are, what they look like. The idea communicated there in the original language is more than just forgetting what I look like, but it's forgetting who I am. Forgetting the essential essence of what makes me a person. For a Christian, what makes you the essential Christian is completely contained in 66 books. In the canon of Scripture, this defines what Christianity looks like. This defines what Christian living looks like. This defines everything about honoring and worshiping God. And we're warned in Scripture not to add to it or take away from it because this is perfect. This is completely sufficient for life. This is completely inspired and infallible. This will never be proven wrong. There's not one fact inside... There's not one fact inside of this Bible that will ever contradict science so long as we properly understand both the Bible and science. This wasn't written by men. It was men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit that recorded all of these facts. And so when we read in it that we're commanded in the seventh month to put up these booths and we're supposed to worship God, what in the world could that possibly mean? There's a lot of holidays in the Old Testament, kind of calendar events that come from time to time and they have a purpose. And what could that purpose possibly be? What do you think? Do you think it's just God giving us a strict rule of law that we would prove our obedience to him by doing everything that he's told us to do? I don't know if you guys realize this, but most of the decisions that you make in life, you make unconsciously. You don't even think about them. My parents always warned me, Derek, think before you do. I've gotten good at the thinking before I do. You know what I've not gotten good at? Thinking before I talk. Some of you know that struggle. A lot of the decisions that we make, we make instinctively. Whenever you reach for a door, do you decide to use your left hand or your right hand, or do you just use one? There's no thought that goes into that. Think of amplified. How many small decisions do you make in your life that you really put no thought in whatsoever? Some people make their coffee pot. They don't even have to count anymore. They just know what feels right. I like my coffee strong, so when I make it at the church, I'm sure to count because I know that one day Miss Sherry's going to come back and Brother Jim's going to come back and she's going to water it down and make me feel bad for drinking my coffee like a sailor. But I bet whenever she makes it, she doesn't even count to three or whatever low number she puts in there. Maybe it's two. 
two and a half. She just does it. That's not a conscious decision that comes to her mind. You know, God's not surprised by the fact that you don't make every decision in your life. He made you. He formed your innermost parts. He knitted you together. He counted every hair on your head. He knows everything about you. He even understands the parts of you that you don't understand, the parts of you that continue to rebel against him, even though you don't want to rebel against him, the parts of you that disappoint you and discourage you. He understands everything about you. And he gave us these holidays for a reason. He understood that the nation of Israel would drift away from honoring and glorifying God. The repurpose for the holidays is that there would be a constant reminder in our lives that point the people back to what God has done for them. Because they didn't all have the scribes or the ability to read the Pentateuch. In fact, it would have been very valuable to have had a Torah. And there's a lot of commands that every man of Israel is supposed to uh, finish a Torah and other things. We could look at all of that. But, but here's the purpose that he gives us in instituting the Feast of Booths. Remember the 40 days that you were in the wilderness. When I delivered you from Egypt and we came out of that land and I delivered you to the promised land, remember it. On the seventh day, hold a holy, solemn assembly to worship me and to know that I am your God. And you know what's truly devastating about this wonderful picture that God gives us to help us take control of the parts of our mind that we don't actually understand? He gives us this wonderful way of instituting being reminded through tradition. Verse 17 in our text. From the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun. You might know Jeshua as Joshua. They wrote it differently here. I don't know why. From the day that Moses died... And Joshua had led the nation of Israel into the promised land. And they set up Jerusalem and they became a nation to this day. The people had never celebrated the Feast of Booths. Their spiritual lethargy had become so commonplace Remember, this is through the lives of Saul, through the lives of David, through the lives of Solomon, all of the kings that are recorded after that, the division of the nations, the the isolation and the exile and the Babylonian captivity. All of this. They never once obeyed God's word by observing the Feast of Booths. They had never been reminded of their time in the wilderness. They had never unconsciously wired their brain that they could be redirected towards God. There's an interesting thing about your human brain is that your attention is very limited. I know because some of you are starting to drift off as this sermon goes on. Fortunately, your brain is more apt to respond to things that are new and exciting. So I'll, I'll preach the rest of the sermon facing this way, and that'll get all of your attention. God wants to shape our brain in a way that glorifies Him. 
He gives us traditions for the purpose of glorifying Him. Christ, when He instituted the Lord's Supper, tells us, do this in remembrance of Me. When we celebrate baptism, we remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. When we look at all of what God has done for us, it's like us looking at our time in the wilderness. When we read the entire scriptures and we see everything that's inside of it, what we're actually remembering is what God has delivered us from. The purpose of holidays are to serve as a reminder. And when we come to Christmas, what is the purpose of that holiday? Is it wrong that we celebrate it? Is it right that we celebrate it? I don't know. I don't really care. And my opinion doesn't matter. Do you know what does matter? That you're setting time aside to remember what God has done for you. Thanksgiving's coming up. Well, that's not a Christian holiday at all. That's an American holiday. What are you thankful for, Christian? Is God the first thing on your mind? Is your salvation what matters to you? Are you thankful for the salvation of your friends and your family? Are you thankful for the opportunity that you have to minister to people? Are you thankful that God is still using you? Are you reminding yourself of those things? Or like the nation of Israel, has the church become so lethargic in our spiritual worship that they seem not to matter at all? When we weep, are we able to stand back up with the joy of the Lord being our strength? joy of the Lord is our strength. And we respond to him with so much excitement and so much everything that is inside of us because we know that he's reminding us of everything that he has. God gives us a prescribed law, and this is a terrifying thought for many people to think about how little control we have in our lives, but we can focus on God by simply replacing the things of this world with the things of Him, by ascribing meaning to things that glorify God. And we should be careful in this that we don't create idols or anything of that sort, but there's actually something practical. When we look in the Old Testament, one of the things that the people of Israel were told to do is to take and put on their wall a Methuselah or a scroll wrapped up with Scripture, that every time they walked by it, they would be reminded of what God has told them, that the Lord your God is one. Do we have things in our house that glorify God? Do we have things in our house that when we look at them, we are reminded of God? We might. Have they just become empty decor? Or are they an encouragement to you? Do you let them be an encouragement to you? My last point, my last, and I'll be very fast. Look in verse 18. Day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. Our spiritual maturity requires immeasurable consistency day by day 2 Corinthians 4:16 says so we do not lose heart through our outer self though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day the point is this It was not sufficient that Nehemiah rebuilt the wall in Jerusalem because he was there with a burden from God to restore the spiritual worship of the people of Israel. It's not enough 
that we have a burden to rebuild or to reestablish or to regrow things. Reconstruction is not reconstruction on the house. Reconstruction is reconstruction on the heart of the house. The strength of the church comes from the authenticity of their worship. How earnestly we seek God. And you can't do it on your own. But God's willing to help you if you'll just remember that it's Him that's going to do the work.